Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our return from hiatus and 93rd episode, it's the return of Nathaniel Hubbard, aka Hub. Along the way, we discuss the joy of being at the center of an extremely specific Venn diagram, the deep loves and abiding hatreds a childhood steeped in Boston sports can bring, and the adventures of such colorfully named heroes as Urban Shocker, Oil Can Boyd, and some scrub named Larry Bird. And yes, we do briefly talk about the haunted disco barn. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. you been oh good man things have been busy got to change a tire for the first time yesterday that was fun ah exciting yeah because um i've never owned a car as an adult and so when kimiko came back from the store and was just like uh my car was pulling to the left and turns out i think either someone slashed my tires or it just blew out oh i saw that that looked nasty man and she was driving on it and i and it was just like oh you know it was weird i think i need to take my car in for a service because you know it's pulling to the left and i looked at it and i'm like Okay, that's the entire tire has just come <laughs> off. Like there, where there was tire, there is now hole. But then, then her mom decided to point out. She's like, well, "Why don't you get Lucas to put the spare on?" And <laughs> she's like, "Well, Lucas has never owned a car and has his learners, but doesn't really know how to drive. So, no, why don't we just get the guy to come and, and get it just up the road?" And then she goes, "Oh, well, I expect men to know these kinds of things." Ooh, that's like, ouch. So you better believe I spite-watched a YouTube tutorial <laughs> and then went out and changed the fucking tire myself. <laughs> well done. It is oddly satisfying doing dumb shit like that. Mm. I mean, even something as stupid as, like, changing a light bulb or, like, the battery on a smoke alarm if it uh-huh. requires a ladder. You know, you just like, yeah. I've done a thing. Yeah, suddenly I am Snyder from one day at a time, and I am very good <laughs> at being a human adult. I mean, God, it's like you do it right. You're past that. You reach Fonz levels where it's like someone's like, oh, wasn't that difficult? And you go, no, because of X, Y, Z. And you sound like for half a second, like a competent human being. Unfortunately, I'm more like Fonzie in that the entire foundation of my knowledge of repairing anything is maybe I could hit it. Maybe if I just punch it, it will work. It's the Ronsky method. I'm going to try that first and first through fifth because there's a great bit on The Sopranos where they're trying to fix the TV and he's like, let me try the Ronsky method. We learned this in the army. He takes his shoe off and he beats the side of the TV with it. Huh. Did it work? Yeah. Because <laughs> it was a CRT TV so you just had to knock that shit into alignment again. Gotcha. I don't know what those words mean, but... 
I was going to say, Hub, you grew up in this dimension out of time. You know what a CRT TV is. <laughs> I should. There are so many things that I should know and so many things that I shouldn't know. And it really is just a weird boggle game of which of those tend to pop up. Okay. Remember the big old TVs that, that like extended as far back as they were wide? Oh, yeah. Yeah, those ones. You know, okay. like TVs were until about 15 years ago. <laughs> Gotcha. CRT. Oh, I just don't know what those letters mean. Cathode ray tube. Okay, there we go. According to my dad, they used to look for ones that people had thrown out, because if you got them straight on the front with a rock, they would actually blow out the screen. Ooh. This is when he was a little kid, and he was just like, you know, those super old black and white TVs, if you got to, if you cracked the glass, it would actually burst. And he's like, that was great if you were at a safe distance. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm not going to explore this realm of possibility. I feel strangely ripped off that none of the black and white TVs I had when I was a kid ever did that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've been looking at, do you know who Brett White is? He does TV writing and a podcast about, uh, must have seen TV about old, like, 70s television. The name sounds super familiar, but... And he's completely in love with Bob Newhart. Oh, well, good taste, but uh, no. Uh, he's a lovely guy, but he has an old little rabbit ears TV on his desk. And I'm not even sure how it got to this, but at some point he re-edited The Last Jedi for pen and scan, just on a whim. Huh. Like, fed it into that old TV, and, like, on his Instagram story, was he was like, it works. It shouldn't work, but it does. <laughs> that is impressive. Is this what they planned all along? <laughs> <laughs> Something magical about seeing, you know, Star Wars images with, like, those tracking errors and <laughs> on this little TV with the rabbit ears. It's, it looked entirely right for all that it was completely wrong. It seems like that is kind of right, because those movies are essentially like old Buster Crab Flash Gordon movies. Like, that's the genre mm -hmm. that they make the most sense in. So the idea of seeing them in that format seems really, really appealing to me. Yeah, totally. We had an old black and white TV when I was growing up, and I did not believe my parents that it was black and white. Because, like, I was like, well, I'm watching it, and I know that Smurfs are blue. How would I know that if that was black and white? <laughs> You're wrong about that. There's just colors that you aren't seeing. Just because, yeah, my imagination, I guess, was just filling in color enough. That was my only exposure to what television is. I assumed that it was in color. Checkmate, paterfamilias. <laughs> have you hit record, by the way? I have indeed. Oh, good. I was going to say, this is good stuff. We're missing out if you're not. <laughs> like, I've been, like, kind of on a, a lark. And then, because initially when Hero was really small... I would go to the library and get a whole bunch of old movies or like, you know, set the cable box DVR whenever they would have like, oh, here's all the Clint Eastwood movies. Here's a bunch of war movies. And I would just record them all because I knew at some point I would need to have the TV on for a bit and sit in one place. Mm -hmm. And that kind of re-kick started my, A, my love of old movies and B, this kind of weird thing where I was like, look for this oddball stuff and just be like, yeah, I'll watch that. You know, Duel at Silver Creek. With uh, Audie Murphy? Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> so I've, I've been still doing that, and I've started, for a while it was war movies, because it was a fantastic kind of run of 50s war movies that were on the Foxtel. And so I watched, like, Midway, and I watched The Bridges of Tokori, and I watched all kinds of movies like that. And then I started to buy them, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll get Cross of Iron, because that's, you know, it's a Peckinpah movie. That'll be good. Right. And I'll get Bridge on the River Kwai, because... It's three hours long. That'll kill some time. <laughs> right. And it's got Alec Guinness, and Alec Guinness is the most charming individual who has ever yeah, lived. It's good. Like, it's a real good movie. Lots of these older movies have what I call people with JoJo Seams faces, which is people who have interesting and characterful faces. 
that I presume they have been drawn by Jojo Seeps. Right. Because she loves faces like that. Like, you know, <laughs> people like, oh, fuck, what's his name? Dude who played, not Igor, but Igor. Uh, Dwight Fry has ah. a face like that. Old faces are so great. And I don't know if people used to look different or just it was so much less removed from the Hollywood ideals, like they had been less set in place. So you had characters that were cast that were just like, you had a more reflective view of what humanity actually looked like on the screen. But yeah, I love watching faces from old movies and old television shows like that. Also, I think having a realistic and interesting cast of background characters means that you know your shining stars will shine that much brighter you know you've got a bunch of dudes that look like they've you know been a baseball glove that's been run over by a car (laughs) and suddenly you've got montgomery clift sticking his face out and you go holy shit (laughs) well that's not even though it's not just the background actors though like the Mm. leading men used to be like Spencer Tracy. I love Spencer Tracy, but that is not a handsome man. Walter <laughs> Matthau was the leading man in a number of movies, and he has 100% always looked like Walter Matthau. And I want to get back to him in just a second. But one of my favorite quotes ever is, have you read Kyle Baker's Why I Hate Saturn? Uh, no, but I know of it. It's really, really good. It is specifically like if you read it in the context of oh, this was the 90s, this is very much the 90s, and -hmm. very, very good for the 90s, then it makes the most sense. But one of the lines in it was, in the 50s, an ugly man named Humphrey was America's biggest sex symbol. (laughs) It's like, yeah, (laughs) huh. He was. But yeah, Walter Matthau, I actually just watched The Taking of Pelham 123, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. I love that movie so much. Oh, it's good. But one of the first thoughts when I was watching it was, it's so weird that they recast Walter Matthau in the remake as Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. But when you watch Walter Matthau's performance, it actually totally makes sense. They have like, I mean, like having complete physical dissimilarities in pretty much every way. They still get the same character across completely. It's really, really impressive. They both managed to have this like aloof, bored, ultra confident, but kind of charmingly dismissive thing going on. That is actually kind of genius casting. Yeah, totally. Because if you get, if you cast for the face, then you can get all kinds of great results. Because in Von Ryan's Express, which is one of those other movies that I was watching, where a completely out of his element Frank Sinatra is there with these bunch of people who look like they were in The Great Escape. And it's like, there's Frank Sinatra, who's exactly fucking Frank Sinatra, right down to his, like, Rolex watch. In the middle of it is this guy, his name's Trevor Howard. He plays the, sort of, the British major, who is this, like, uptight little martinet, you know? And then you look up the actor and you go, oh, that's Trevor Howard, and he looks a very particular way. Here, I'm going to sing into the chat if I can. One second. Because you see him and you go, oh, wow, this guy could be a lot of things. And then the minute you tell him what he's supposed to be, he can then change his face to suit it, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like with Frank Sinatra, the reason he looks out of his element in most movies is not necessarily that he is specifically a bad actor. It's, oh, yeah, totally. But it's just that all of his acting in his life was channeled into him playing Frank Sinatra 
a hundred percent of the time. So he's playing Frank Sinatra playing someone else. Right. And that's just like one step removed and it's something that he can't quite pull off. There's a Dean Martin biography that I read where there was a quote from one of the gangsters of the time who was saying like, yeah, Frank always wanted to be a gangster and we were always a little bit weird about that. But all the gangsters I knew always wanted to be Dean Martin. (laughs) I love that partly just because I love Dean Martin. But yeah, that face I sent you, you can imagine that guy either grading a paper or, you know, being able to use a knotted rope to break someone's windpipe and calmly explain how you do it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but all of this was leading up to that I found myself yesterday where I had spent most of the day with Hero. We went out and got breakfast and stuff, and I got to watch him just, like, completely house a baby Chino, which is always entertaining. <laughs> My job in that situation is only to make sure his foam beard doesn't reach his chest. <laughs> we went to the library, we, went, we took him back, and then so Kimiko in the afternoon was like, oh, I'll give you some time to yourself. I'll take him to the playground. And I'm looking at my to-watch DVD section. I'm like, I've got some from the library. I have some I've bought earlier. And I had to admit to myself that the shortest movie in front of me that didn't have subtitles was, in fact, Cleopatra. And I'm like, how did I get into this situation? (laughs) Yeah, you have to be careful how you curate your, like, reading and media consumption list. Because it can have unintended consequences. My neighbor one time, Kelly came over and was like, I don't know what's wrong. I'm so depressed. I spent all day in bed reading, which is like my favorite thing to do. And it's just not snapping me out of this funk. And I was like, well, what were you reading? And she's like, well, I was reading the uh, Chris Ware collection. And it's like, well, there you fucking go. (laughs) I I know. I'll I'll lighten the mood. Where's Cormac McCarthy's The Road? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I used to get that with Michael Chabon books because they're always beautifully written. But, like, they're never upbeat and fun, are they? With the exception of Summerland. That one was actually really, really fun for me. I don't think I've read that one. Which one's that? It's kind of his only that I've read young adult style book. And it's about a coyote traveling across the universe teaching a kid to play baseball, sort of. (sighs) Wait a minute. The kid grows up in the Pacific Northwest and he gets brought to a magical baseball land. But it's it's pretty great. <laughs> okay. You're you're sure this is not, in fact, a fever dream starring Johnny Cash that was on The Simpsons that one time. <laughs> I am eighty-seven percent sure, which is as sure as I am that anything isn't a fever dream starring Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Th- that's just completely derailed me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, it- well, there's always a plausible doubt in my mind that like maybe. Maybe. Maybe I dreamt it. I mean, this one guy wrote a story about comic books, and he also wrote a story about, you know, the uh, Jewish settlement in Alaska, and then he had a fever dream about a talking coyote who taught baseball. <laughs> right. Stands to reason. It's a fun book. It's I'm pretty sure it's like a young adult book. It reads like a young adult book, but it is a Michael Chabon book that I would say is... There's definitely some uh, melancholy in there, but it is predominantly a fun book. Oh, good. Yeah, I still, I'm still, um, oh, that's what I was gonna, I realized that might be a different author. He didn't write Wonder Boys, did he? That would think that was somebody uh, else. Was it? I think it, I don't remember. They all start, these white men all start to blur together after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Wonder like, Boys author. Who are like maybe three quarters of a whimsy step removed from Wes Anderson. It was, in fact, him, yes. Yeah, and I looked it up, and the picture that came up when it said Michael Chabon next to the words Wonder Boys, he looked identical to Michael Douglas in that movie. So, (laughs) another movie where I got to the end of it, and I'm just like, I don't want to do anything right now. (laughs) Everything's just a mess.
What's the point? Oh, see, I think my, my like primary example of that is I was in like Kinokuniya, which is a big kind of Japanese and Korean bookstore, but they also have a massive comic section and stationary section. So it's, you know, like honey to a fly to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I was in there and I think I grabbed like this was like years and years ago. I grabbed Wanted off the shelf and I just went, oh, what's this? And flipped through it, like reading at random. And I put it back and not only did I not buy it, not only did I not like it, but it ruined the rest of my day. It was so bad. Yeah. I described it as wanting to lay down and scrape out the inside of my head. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, it's just like, yeah, it's like, I don't don't know, man. (laughs) Again, completely reasonable response to Mark Millar. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I liked the first Ultimates series, but... It's one that I have no interest in ever revisiting, and I am kind of embarrassed a little bit about how much I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I read the first Ultimates and the first, uh, I think, the first four Ultimate Spider-Man and I think the first like six Ultimate X-Men, because mm-hmm. Marvel had this thing called Dot Comics, ah. which was a terrible Flash reader, which is kind of like how Comixology is now, where it's Guided View. Mm-hmm. And they put it on their website in like 2000. And they were like, okay, we're going to use this to get new readers to comics. So we're putting like a ton of content out onto this for free. And me being a poor university student who was just getting back into comics, it was this godsend because I'm like, there's just all of this comics that I could just read for free. And this is amazing. And so I read all the Ultimates and I read all the all Ultimate Spider-Man and all of Ultimate X-Men. And uh, also that, uh, was it JMS who wrote that 9-11 issue where Dr. Doom cries? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, that one was there too. Yeah. The less said about that, the better. But, and it's like, yeah, I remember like reading Ultimates and thinking, this is great. This is wonderful. And actually, Ultimate Spider-Man was the first I started collecting in trades as an adult. And I mm-hmm. only recently let that go when I had to move houses and realized it had not moved since the last time I moved houses. <laughs> like the dust was still there. And so it's like I finally ended up like eBaying it or something. But it was 20 volumes all up of Ultimate Spider-Man trades. And yeah, that Ultimates book, I did in fact go back to it once. There's a Shannon Elizabeth joke in that book. Ooh. Where Ultimate Tony Stark decides to take Shannon Elizabeth on a date to the space shuttle. And it's implied they bone in zero G. And I'm just like, <sighs> Yeah, no, that sounds about right. That's the only redeeming thing about the first two volumes of The Ultimates is that they are not the third volume of The Ultimates. Oh, Jesus. The one that's by Jeff Loeb. It's so amazingly bad. Like, that was like, I could not make it past. I think I maybe stopped reading the second issue halfway through, which, like, just never happens. It's bad. It's real bad. Yeah. (laughs) And it was also, like, it's colored Every interaction I've had with Jeff Loeb's work since I was a guest on a podcast that I'm not sure ever came out. That was we read the long Halloween. Okay, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. I could not get the taste of Jeff Loeb's writing from, I think, probably the ultimates out of my mind. And it read very, very badly to me. The Tim Sale art is absolutely fucking gorgeous. And I love Tim Sale. But like. I was like, this is actually kind of dumb. And if I hadn't gone into it with the mindset of this is by that writer that I don't like that one thing by, it's probably going to be dumb. I think it would have felt just fine to me. Yeah, it's also, I think, The Long Halloween especially, it is held up as this is a classic Batman story. This is one of the Batman stories, right? Mm -hmm. So, and not just that, it's one of the 
capital I important Batman stories that influenced, you know, so many film portrayals and stuff. And so you go in and I think because it's a capital I important comic, you're in your first read, you forgive it a lot of things. Because you're like, of course this isn't going to be like a normal comic. This is an important comic. Which right. is, again, a wrong standpoint, but it's a very understandable one. But yeah, Ultimates 3, like put it this way, I was buying in soft cover trades because they were what fit on my shelf and they were cheaper. And I was looking at my shelf and I'm like, oh, Ultimates 3 came out? I didn't even hear any hype about this one. Oh, wow. I got to get it. But the only type they had available at the store I was at was a hardcover trade. Oh. And I went... Oh, that's more expensive. And this is Australia, so more expensive means that's $45. Whoa. And I went, I've, I've got to read it. You know, it's, I, I like the Ultimates so much. I've got to get it. And so I bought Ultimates 3 for $45. Oh, I'm so sorry. And Nathaniel Hub Hubbard, I was so <laughs> angry. Oh, my God. I was so angry when I got Because the art, I, I can't even remember who drew it. It's, I'm blanking. I don't feel like looking it up to name and shame somebody. It, it's like Ed McGinnis era. I don't think it's necessarily him, but it's that era of artwork. It's messy and ugly, and you can't tell what's going on from panel to panel. And I think that last bit is always what bothers me. If I'm reading your page four or five times, not just to understand what your message, but to understand what's actually happening from panel yeah. to panel, I think that that's a book that has kind of failed. I don't know if that's miscommunication or editorial... <laughs> lack of control or something but it's just like you know it loses me very quickly when that happens you know what it's like you know when you get like a short story compilation like one of those like oh you know greatest sci-fi of this year or whatever right and you're reading it and it's this okay i think i'm following i'm following and you get to the last page and in the last two paragraphs it goes completely off the rails and you get to the end of the page and you go wait what and then you read back again and you go no what what that level of frustration is so specific because you know there is literally no more ever. Yeah. There is not another chapter that will explain this. It's a short story and you're done. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. No, that that's a very apt analogy for that particular type of mismanagement of space in a comic book. And it also doesn't help, as I'm thinking back, that I've spent the last couple of weeks rereading More Than Meets the Eye by James Roberts ah. uh, and a bevy of artists. And that is a real fucking good comic book. Like in all aspects of it, from writing to characters to art to everything. And so me and Annie Creighton have this DM channel on Twitter, which is just me taking screenshots and just yelling about them and how good they are. <laughs> and as she, as she put it, she's like, this is a recap blog, but I'm the only reader. And I'm like, yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, we were behind and I had no Wi-Fi signal for my iPad for a bit. So I've got, let me check, 60 images to send you about how good these are. I love the idea of live tweeting to an audience of one. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was reading the end of More Than Meets the Eye, which became the beginning of Lost Light, that audience was Megan Nielsen, where I would just like take a screenshot and just scream in Twitter DM because some plot point had happened and I couldn't believe it. And oh my God, they really did that. The, usually the response would be in all caps. I know they did that. And it's like, but then they didn't. It's like, oh no. <laughs> but yeah. That's that good kind of comics reacting. But at one point, like, Annie was doing the hourly comics the way a lot of people were doing yesterday. Mm -hmm. And one of them is just like, Lucas recaps more than meets the eye to me, and I cry at my desk. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like that. Have you dipped your toe into the Transformers comics? I have not. Not even a full toe dip. I have, like, an issue from, like, 1986. Ah, uh, that's the Furman stuff. It's the one that has the dude who is the laser gun. That uh, would be Megatron? No, no. Or wait, no, Shockwave. Yeah, wait, I thought Shockwave was the tape recorder. He had one eye. No, that's Soundwave. 
So, okay, I can yeah, see how no, you would make that. It is absolutely this shockwave. This is the problem with Transformers. Right. <laughs> it is shockwave, and he is looking at some, like, he's lurking behind some graffiti on the moon, I think. Oh, the Transformers are all dead on the front? Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. That's the issue that I have. So Such a great cover. I read it at one point, and I liked it a lot, but I haven't read any other stuff, and I don't remember it. This is the James Roberts More Than Meets the Eye run. Because the thing is, there have been Transformers comics for a long time. Uh, Dreamwave had them for a while, then IDW got the rights. And they were not great for a while. They were sort of grim and gritty, like, oh, this is in the real world now. So we got to show that Spike is a special ops agent. Oh, and we got to show that he fucks and doesn't care about it. Right. Like that kind of stuff. Then at a certain point, they split them off into two lines. There was Transformers, Robots in Disguise, and Transformers, More Than Meets the Eye, because they wanted that song stuck in your head forever. Gotcha. And More Than Meets the Eye starts off with, oh, hey, the war's over. This four million year war, it's over now. And the 14 billion odd people who left Cybertron because there was a war on they're now back and they're sick of you people so we're kicking a bunch of you off the planet because you're warmongering remnants and a bunch of them are like right we're gonna do the equivalent of getting into a ship and looking for the holy grail and we're a bunch of misfits and weirdos and incredibly dysfunctional people ah and being on the ship and away from the war means they get all this space to be weird and dysfunctional and have adventures and it's it's so good it's actually I'd, I'd say it's, like, my favorite comic of the last 10 years. Like, it beats out Saga. It beats out Monstrous. It beats out all of these great works are just, like, pipped out by this incredibly good Dumb Talking Robots comic. Speaking of what I would consider incredibly good Dumb Talking Robots comic. Yes. Have you read the new GoBots comic book? Oh, that's the Tom Scioli one, right? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I haven't read it, but I think I have read his Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, which I avoided because I love the James Roberts Transformers so much that when I looked at Mm -hmm. that, it seemed like such a remove. I'm like, oh, I won't like this. And eventually Chris Sims like broke down my will and said, you'll love it. It's amazing. (laughs) The craft is incredible. You'll love it. Promise. And so I opened it up. I think I actually read it while in the waiting room at the hospital before my kid was born. And so I had like hours to kill because I was Mm -hmm. just like, there's nothing to do until I hear back from the doctor. So I just opened it up and yeah, Tom Cioli knows what he's doing. Yeah, the GoBots one specifically, I hadn't been previously familiar with his work. Mm -hmm. I know I had a friend who was super into Godland, but I never got around to it. But it reads more like the old like Eastman and Laird TMNT stuff than anything I've read in a long time. And I think it's a specific choice. But there's something about reading that comic book where it almost, it's incredibly competently done, but it still feels like it was drawn on somebody's notebook in the 80s yeah like even the lettering it's just like it's really really fun yeah and thing is you're right it looks like it's done on someone's notebook but you might think that makes it sound crude but no it's incredibly well crafted yeah it's just you can feel that level of like DIYness to it but by somebody who is incredibly good at what they're doing but it still has that like feeling of love and attention that's put into every sequence yeah, and like the Transformers versus G.I. Joe stuff, a lot of it, like, you could take a pen and, like, okay, you know how they'll occasionally analyze, like, full-page spreads and be like, okay, here is your triangle, here is your, your sight lines, here is how this works, here is how yeah. this lines up to this, lines up to this. Almost every page of Transformers versus G.I. Joe is some form of splash, and so there are these massive fights happening. Do me a favor, go to Google and just type in Tom Cioli Transformers G.I. Joe and just look at some of this art. Okay. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of that, if it looks like it should be covers, it's interiors. Wow. God damn it. I <laughs> I am both elated and annoyed that I now have to buy more comic books. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the kind of thing you get when you talk to me. And the thing is, like, you look at some of it, and it's like, it's got, it'll have, like, sound wave in the background, and where his knees bend, if you follow that line back in, you'll get another enemy character, and then you'll get a G.I. Joe, and you'll get something happening, and it all just works as one giant, incredibly detailed, encompassed splash page. Yeah, that's... It's beautiful stuff. That's really good. It's the kind of thing where it looks like the comics that might be tied in with a toy that you bought, you know? Right. Something thrown together to advertise a fan club. <laughs> yeah but again it has this level of craft and detail where it's just like oh no he knows exactly what he's doing yeah it's like when a professional artist does the cover of a zine <laughs> yeah or or you know when a really excellent singer in a movie has to pretend to be a bad singer they're <laughs> so good at it because a bad singer being a bad singer is not fun to listen to someone being right. like creatively perfectly bad is great yeah yeah, and there's a bit, and I've, and I've had this story told to me and said it myself many times. In this Transformers versus G.I. Joe thing, you know those movie novelization comics you used to get? Yeah. Like, I had the Indiana Jones one for The Last Crusade and, and stuff, right? So what he's done is he's written the comics adaptation of a film based on his Transformers versus G.I. Joe run, but the film doesn't exist. Ah, this I like. Because it's like, okay, you got to think about compression, and then decompression, right? Because the movie would have to compile, you know, 40 issues of comics into an hour and a half. And then how do you decompress an hour and a half into four issues of comics? Well, that's kind of what I'm blanking on the name, but the guy who did the grand design, like X-Men. Oh, grand yeah, design. yeah. That's Ed, kind Ed of Piscor. what that is, too. Yeah. I just read that one. That's so good, too. Yeah. Did you read Hip Hop Family Tree? I dipped in and out. I didn't read all of them. Ah, it's so good. It's some of my favorite comic books ever. Yeah, so good. I was going to say, because you're, you're a hip-hop guy from way back, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a perfect intersection of my interests, like old-school hip-hop and comic books that are specifically drawn to mirror the style of old treasury-sized comic books. It's like, oh, I didn't realize I was anyone's target demographic, but apparently I am. This is fun. <laughs> wow, you are being marketed directly, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like those Facebook side ads where it's just like, only Aries who were born in New Hampshire who <laughs> will understand this. And then, you know, there's a picture of a toaster oven. You're the middle of a Venn diagram and, or an incredibly specific superlative. <laughs> yeah. I am the tallest Canadian between 30 and 40 <laughs> on this particular block of Sydney, New South Wales, Australia in the year 2019. <laughs> oh, congratulations. I know, right? I should get a medal. That would be a hell of a trophy to get. <laughs> so I suppose, I mean, considering I'm talking about other media that uh, know your interests, I did, in fact, along a uh, Wikipedia walk, ended up at a page about Disorderlies. You know that Fat Boys movie? Oh, I was just actually talking about that with Osvaldo online recently. He had a question about it. and <laughs> Of course he did. I could not answer because I have not seen it in long enough. I, I definitely need to watch it again. Again, it does not shock me that Osvaldo has a question about fucking disorderlies. <laughs> <laughs> Another gent with extremely specific tastes. Yes. Well, speaking of specific tastes, I mean, we've been just chatting for like half an hour now, because I always love talking to you, Hub. Likewise. 
but we did want to speak specifically about something because once again this is one of these episodes where we just swung straight into the conversation and I completely blew out the format of the episode but I don't care excellent so we were going to talk initially about basketball and specifically the Boston Celtics and how they were formative to you as a young person so want to speak a little to that I would be delighted to. So I grew up in New Hampshire, which is about, an well, I guess I started to say New Hampshire, which is about an hour north of Boston. But the part of New Hampshire I was in was about an hour north of Boston. All of New England pretty much is obsessed with Boston sports teams. And in the 80s, the Celtics were absolutely dominant and were super, super fun to watch. And yeah, both my parents were sports fans. My mom was a huge baseball fan until the 70s when they lowered the pitcher's mound and brought in designated hitters. And then she was like, nope, I'm done with baseball. And she was done with baseball until... (laughs) This aggression will not stand, man. (laughs) Pretty much. And until 2004, she started watching again. And that was the year when the Red Sox won the World Series. And it was a huge moment for really Red Sox fans everywhere. But I spent as soon as the series ended, I spent a ton of time on the phone with both my mom and my uncles and just like crying and literally being like, anything can happen now. I believe that anything can happen. (laughs) It's this weird moment of like ultimate catharsis that I did not realize I was so invested in that. But the team had not won in over 80 years. And the thing that was amazing about them was they were so close every year. And it was also extra fun because they got to the World Series by beating the Yankees in a way that no one has ever won a series before, where they were down 0-3 and then won four games in a row to come back in a best-of-seven series against their most hated rival, really (laughs) in the most intense rivalry in sports. A.K.A. the villains in any baseball movie. They're always going to be the Yankees, you know it. Yes, yes, as well they should be, and not just in any sports movie, in life. Um, (laughs) And this was extra driven home to me by the fact that my dad, despite growing up in Massachusetts, was a Yankees fan, which he was not just a Yankees fan, but in addition to that, and I would say probably not unrelated to that, was kind of an asshole. <laughs> he would take me to whenever the Red Sox and the Yankees would play, he would take me to Fenway with him to the game. And he would wear a Yankees hat in the middle of Fenway. Oh. And I am still convinced that he brought me as a human shield because I was like seven <laughs> years old and pretty cute kid and wearing a Boston Red Sox hat. And so maybe nobody's going to take a swing at him. I don't think anybody ever did, despite the fact that we would get the bleacher seats when we went down there. And when they would be batting around beach balls and stuff, he would take down a beach ball if it came near him and turn around and yell, sit down and watch the game. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That paints an incredibly specific picture. (laughs) Yeah. But he would still take me to those games. And it was it was always like it was a terrifying experience for me. I would love it when he would go by himself because he would just bring home beach balls <laughs> and we would have them to play with. Where'd you find this? Oh, but when I was there in person for the interaction, it was always a little bit scarier. But he would do that. And he would also take me to Celtics games and Bruins games in Boston Garden because at Boston Garden, they had obstructed view seats, which oh. means that they had a poorly built stadium. And they're like, well, we can squeeze a little bit of extra money in this if we put this seat directly behind a pillar so that if you sit there, you cannot see anything. 
And they would sell those seats super cheap. And so my dad would buy those and we'd go to those games together and then we'd sneak down Ah. closer to the court or the ice between innings or periods. The hockey games were always a bit more of an intense experience. Fortunately, my dad was a fan of the Bruins and the Celtics. His reasoning for being a Yankees fan was always that the part of Massachusetts that he grew up in, he said, would get the radio broadcasts of the Yankees game when he was growing up, which is plausible, I suppose, but I still think he was just being a contrarian. (laughs) Why are you a fan of the Yankees? Because fuck you, that's why. (laughs) Pretty much. But yeah, when we would go to the Bruins game, I'm not sure if this happened, but I remember it. I understand that I'm an unreliable narrator in my own life in some regards, because this sounds like too perfect and on-the-nose story to happen, but I do remember it happening. So there's my caveat. But there was a guy who was swearing a lot and yelling at the players because we were at a hockey game. And he turned and looked down at me and apologized to my dad. And my dad looked confused for a second and then was like, oh, I know where I brought him. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that was always my reward for anything would be going to these events. And I loved the Celtics. And I know I started talking about baseball initially. My favorite basketball player is also my favorite baseball player. It was Danny Ainge. The first three seasons of his career, he was a second baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays. Okay. And then he made the transition to basketball and got drafted by the Boston Celtics. And he was not the best player on the court. Although I would have argued that point when I was a kid. He was my favorite, I think, in part because he was nobody else's favorite. He was the only starter from the 84 through 86 Celtics who has not had their jersey retired. Oh, Yeah, that is despite or maybe partly because of the fact that he has been the team's general manager for like 10 years now. (laughs) I, I feel like it might be one of those where he's like, well, like, we would retire this guy's jersey, but he's me, and I feel weird about that. <laughs> so I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. Stop trying to fold my chair up. I'm sitting in it. Right. Yeah. In a wonderful piece of serendipity, the year he got traded from the Boston Celtics, I was absolutely furious about it. But it was also the year they had Jimmy Rogers take over as head coach from Casey Jones, which, yeah, that was the other great thing about the Celtics. Their head coach was named Casey Jones. But when Jimmy Rogers took over for him, huh, I just realized they're both related to train music. I was just about to say. (laughs) Well, unlike the Yodel and Brakeman, I am not a fan of the Jimmy Rogers, who was the head coach of the Boston Celtics for a few years, because he traded Danny Ainge, who was a uh, six foot four shooting guard to, I believe it was the Golden State Warriors for Joe Klein, who was seven feet and nothing. (laughs) Yeah, he was a backup center. And as near as I could tell, his skill set and just on the back of his trading card, it should have just said seven feet tall. Good at taking a charge. (laughs) But the fortuitous bit of that was that Danny Ainge ended up eventually getting traded to the Portland Trailblazers at around the time when my mom moved out to Oregon and I started coming out to Portland regularly. So it provided a transition into being a Portland Trailblazers fan. And then he eventually got traded to Phoenix at the same time that Charles Barkley went to Phoenix. And that team was incredibly fun to watch. And I just, I love Danny Ainge and I love basketball and I get super caught up in the minutia of all of it. I can't watch the games on television just because they're weird and proprietary about the cable rights, but I listen to games on the radio and will follow the stat sheets as they're updated and love to read the box scores in the newspaper the next day. It's just a, yeah, it's a sports nerd thing that I totally just get into. 
And that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show again, because one, it's through various anecdotes you've told on Teen Titan Wasteland and then eventually Titan at the Defense that would get me searching into these weird rabbit holes of like sports ephemera and odd moments. And I know far too much about the big unit destroying that fucking bird. <laughs> it is it is ridiculous that that happened. Like that yeah. is absolutely a moment in media consumption that is like, no, that's... Wait, how I, did I switch the channel and there's like there's a glitch in the matrix and it's merged with a Bugs Bunny cartoon? Yeah, like I, honestly, I would have been just like obnoxious for like three days after I found <laughs> out that information because anyone I would look for an excuse to bring up that video and watch Randy Johnson <laughs> remove a bird from this plane of existence <laughs> with a fastball. So it's like I like part of what I love about sports is that you get these oddball stories that will kind of pull you into a moment in time and like some of the weird details therein. And the other thing that happened was recently I went back over to Canada and stayed at my mom and stepdad's house to visit my dad. And what I forgot is how much of a Canadian football fan my mother is. And therefore by definition, by marrying her, my stepdad became because it was part and parcel. He became a vegetarian and a Winnipeg <laughs> Blue Bombers fan by marrying my mom. So it's just like, yeah, it's like, this is part of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not necessarily written into the ceremony, but it's heavily implied. Uh, part of the dowry is a newfound love of Doug Flutie. <laughs> <laughs> the Flutie brothers, man. Darian Flutie's pretty good, too. But what I found is that I'd forgotten things. If you had asked me in my first, say, 10 years in Australia, hey, did you grow up with sports, really? I would say no. We are not a sports-loving family. Until, like, I would see a hockey game on at a bar that I was at and just be riveted to it. Or someone would ask me something about baseball, and I would talk about, you know, the last two World Series before the lockout, where the Toronto Blue Jays won back-to-back, -back and how there was a secret conspiracy theory that the lockout was due to the fact that the Canadian team won two years in a row, and they were a great team. <laughs> and I could, tell, I could tell you, you know, jo how John Olerud was a fantastic cleanup hitter, and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just like, I, I, I guess we do like sports in my family because my mom and my dad and my, and my stepdad would sit and pour over the like the standings for the Canadian Football League and be like who gets the wild card spot and we have to beat Edmonton but it's okay if we only tie with Calgary because then we'll still clinch the spot in the playoffs and then we'll have to take on this team oh I love that shit and they just took some of it out of basketball which makes me very very sad oh, no. and upset it's now the standings for the playoffs are determined by best eight teams in the west teams with best records in the east there still are the divisions but if you win the division you don't necessarily get the four spot in that division which i think is bullshit because it eliminates these built-in regional rivalries which i love like i need a good reason to hate minnesota like if we're playing the timberwolves <laughs> i need i need a little oomph to give a shit you know like yeah. i Help me hate Minnesota. That's what I need the divisional standings for. <laughs> oh. Although that is, that's the thing, because it's like, you know, you mentioned Boston, and uh, a good friend of mine, Anna, is from Boston. Like, she talked about, you know, Bruins games, and I instantly, like, my back went up, because I'm just like, 
Oh, it's the, it's the fucking Bruins, man. I hate fucking this. Fucking Ray Bork and Cam Neely ruining everything. Oh, oh my God. Ray... Oh, this, oh. I, there, there is... It's referred to as Burke Street here in Australia, but I called it Bork Street, and I got the worst fucking looks from people. I'm like, you know, like Ray Bork, the hockey player. Yeah, nobody gets it. Oh. But the thing is, I was a Montreal Canadiens fan when I was a kid. And so, of course, Boston was... Like the the drizzling shits, the dirt worst for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, th- that's the thing. Like I grew up hating the L.A. Lakers and I still hate the L.A. Lakers. But now I have good reason to hate the L.A. Lakers. When I was a kid, they had Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It was the Showtime Lakers. They were the most fun team to watch until Don Nelson started being a head coach. Like they were so much objective fun to watch and were so skilled and were super nice guys for the most part. And <laughs> I hated them so much because they were not the Boston Celtics. <laughs> oh, and yeah, it's like even like thinking of the family split. Like my mom was a Maple Leafs fan. My dad was a Detroit Red Wings fan despite growing up in French Canada. I don't know how that happened. Oh, did he make up a bullshit reason about radio games? <laughs> No, I think he just liked the cut of Steve Eiserman's jib. Huh. And then my sister was a Vancouver Canucks fan, and I liked the Canadians. And I'm like, there were four of us and four teams in that house. I wow. don't know how that happened. <laughs> like, watching my mom sit down with my little son, who is, at the time, was about, what, 15 months, so like a, a year and three or four months. He was sitting on her knee, and she had the newspaper app on her tablet open and was reading him the scores like it was a bedtime story. <laughs> And then the Edmonton Eskimos converted, and so they were able to continue. <laughs> it's just like, wow, this is how this shit gets started. When my stepbrother, Corey, who I co-host the show with, when Corey met my cousins who live in Maine, for not the first time, but the second time, he met them once, and then he met them again a year later. The kids were probably about four or five the first time he met them, six or seven the second time that he met them. First of all, they were adorable. They had thick Maine accents, despite the fact that neither of their parents did, which oh was a delight for the entire family. Is this where the Maine accent bit on the Titan <laughs> of the Defense has come from? In part, yeah. <laughs> in large part. I have a fair amount of family in Maine. It is definitely where the fact that the elderly vampire farmer disco enthusiast... Oh, haunted disco barn. <laughs> is a Red Sox fan who listens to the games on the radio. That's definitely where that came from. Uh, momentary digression, folks. <laughs> if you haven't listened to Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn, the special Halloween episode that Hub put together about <laughs> a rural vampire and the various adventures that he goes on in the 70s, it's great and oh, kind of you. magical. <laughs> and like every once in a while, I'll see someone else has listened to it and I'll be able to go, yeah, yeah. It's fucking weird and great, isn't it? Oh, well, thank you very much. That was maybe my favorite thing that I've made a podcast of. It was definitely a pretty big departure from what we normally do. And it's the first fully scripted thing that I've done. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was definitely weird. And I'm oddly proud of it. <laughs> yeah. Also, I got to hear a vampire with a main accent say the words booger sugar. And that that made my fucking day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I would like to also apologize for the terrible Canadian accent that I did. Oh, it was one. bad. It was real bad. Hub. <laughs> it was almost as bad as we've just started watching season three of The Good Place. And there's one lady on there who... Her character is Australian, and she is not Australian. And I, like, we heard two sentences, and both me and, and my partner just sat up and went, what the fuck is that? 
it was like lost all over again. I recently rewatched Punisher Warzone, which is an oh, yes. absolutely insane movie. But there are so many characters in that movie where it's just like, oh, these are all British people doing American accents. Like that, that is certainly a choice you made. And like doing the Americanest of accents. Jigsaw. Yeah, the guy who plays McNulty on The Wire, who the whole yeah. time I was watching The Wire, I was just like, I guess Baltimore accents are different than I thought they were. And then when I found out that he was British, I was like, okay, okay, that makes all of the sense in the world now. It's like, you're not from Pimlico. <laughs> but you were talking about your your main cousins oh, uh, and yeah. what happened. So when Corey met them the second time, their mom was like, you remember Corey, don't you? And both Spencer and Joseph said, nope, and went back to whatever they were doing. (laughs) And she made an apology on their behalf. She's like, oh, you know, kids these age, they just don't remember anything. And I turned to Spencer and I was like, Spencer, what was Bill Miller's batting average last year for the Red Sox? And he's like, 327. Wait, you mean right-handed or (laughs) left-handed? It's like... (laughs) Because Bill Miller was a switch hitter, so uh, <laughs> which was oh a, a fun burn on Corey and also just illustrates the level of devotion that those children had both to statistics and to the Boston Red Sox. Oh, my God. And that's the thing is like, you know, it's great to find your tribe of people who watched the same silly movies that you did or read the same comic books. I got to tell you, man, a sports nerd is a nerd through and through. You know, you could talk about someone who would tell you who inks Jack Kirby better, and they had the same <laughs> level of fervor as someone who could tell you, you know, different batting averages for right or left for a particular player from, you know, whatever the 1970s. You know, the people who know about my favorite named player on the planet from the 20s, Urban Shocker. Ooh. Yeah, that's a good one. He's a good one. I found him because of a side-on comment in Joe Kelly's I Kill Giants, which is an amazing book, to the point where I have something from it tattooed on the inside of my arm that I can see right now. Ah, It's real good. I suggest looking it up if you can. But at one point, she has a Warhammer, and she's named her Warhammer Kovaleski because Kovaleski was a young kid pitcher who beat the Yankees three times in five days. <laughs> And they called him, sorry, the Giants, not the Yankees. And they called him the Giant Killer. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's like, I remember looking him up and then just like looking at the team that he was on. And I saw the name Urban Shocker and I'm like, you're fucking kidding me. <laughs> and no, it was in fact his real name. Like not a changed oh, name or anything. That's, uh, that's wonderful. My favorite player for the Red Sox when I was growing up was a pitcher named Oil Can Boyd. <laughs> And I will, that was a nickname. It was not his real name, but it was the only name I knew him by. And he would put his whole body into pitching to the point where it would often knock his hat off when he threw a pitch, (laughs) which ended up being a problem for him because later on he developed a really, really unfortunate cocaine habit. And when he was playing an away game, he didn't have time to stash his cocaine in his locker room or he didn't trust the locker room staff so he had it in the band of his hat and he ended up spilling cocaine over the pitcher's mound and then had to like walk around and try to stomp it into the dirt to conceal it (laughs) also they tried to make him a relief pitcher later on and he did not want to be a relief pitcher so his strategy for dealing with that was to habitually get drunk in the bullpen so that he would not be available to pitch in later innings (laughs) Um, because he was a starter damn it (laughs) 
I will also hold that the infamous Bill Buckner play where the ball rolled through his legs and the Red Sox ended up losing the World Series to the Mets, which was a horrible, horrible day and one of my earliest sports memories of watching. I hold that they would not have lost that game. He was scheduled to be their pitcher, but they decided to go with, I believe it was Roger Clemens on short rest instead of him. And I Mm -hmm. think they would have won the game if Oil Can Boyd had pitched. (laughs) That is my theory. But he was sleeping it off in sweating Seagrams at the time. So. Yes, through no fault of his own. <laughs> <sighs> All right, so we've probably got time for one more topic. So I am going to speak to the incredibly talented elephant in the room. Hey, Hub, tell me about Larry Bird. Oh, Larry Bird, you probably know best from Loverboy's Working for the Weekend video in which he's chopping wood, despite the fact that as an NBA player, he has to work on weekends. That always bugged me. <laughs> Larry Bird is, he, he's, he's Larry Legend. You look at him at, he's Larry, ah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not articulate on this point right now because Larry Bird means a great deal to me in part because he was an absolute basketball genius, despite the fact that at no point in his career did he look like he was a professional athlete. Like, I mean, he was obviously, he dominated the game when he played. He was a brilliant defender. He was a scrapper. He got into fights, which also Danny Ainge got into fights, I would just like to say. Part of the reason he was my favorite player was because early on I watched him tackle a dude named Tree Rollins. And if you're in the NBA and your name is Tree, there's a reason for that. And it is not because you are small. But yeah, Larry Bird got into, I think, nine fights in his career, which is a pretty respectable number. But yeah, he always looked like he was a guy who would maybe wear a t-shirt into the pool when he was swimming, (laughs) despite being maybe the best player in the league, although he was playing at the same time as Magic Johnson and Julius Irving. And what, what a beautiful league it was at that time. But he just understood the court so much and just could make shots from anywhere and elevated his teammates. And it seemed like also all of his personality was devoted to basketball. Like, I can't imagine him being at all fun to hang out with. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. A lot of my idea of who he was is just formed from the visual of him. And the fact that my mom, when she was going on conference tour, ended up staying in French Lake, Indiana, which is where he is from. And that seems like a town that is apparently totally devoted to Larry Bird. Their number one export for like 40 years running is Larry Bird. She stayed at a hotel room there and she brought back the Larry Bird shampoo, Larry Bird conditioner, Larry Bird shower cap. (laughs) Fantastic. And so we just had that stuff growing up. Yeah, I... There was a game that came out, which was Larry Bird versus Dr. J. That was, I believe, an Atari game. Oh. I've never played the game, but I'm familiar with the picture of it. And in the picture, it's not affiliated officially with the NBA, so they're not wearing their NBA uniforms. I don't think Dr. J is wearing his shirt. Larry Bird, of course, definitely is. But there's just such a juxtaposition there. What- Want to know what's funny? I can correct you on that because this, at this point, was the only thing I knew about Larry Bird was this picture that was in a comic book I had and it was Jordan versus Bird one-on-one and you bet your ass Larry Bird is wearing a t-shirt on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Just dropped it into the chat. Ah. Um... <laughs> As yeah. as I knew who Michael Jordan was. I did not know who Larry Bird was. And I'm like, who is this guy? He lo- like, Is he interviewing him for Talkback Radio? <laughs> him and Magic Johnson 
definitely epitomized the character of their teams. They were both incredibly fierce competitors. Larry Bird was like a fundamentals guy, and the Boston Celtics were a blue-collar scrapper team. And, like, everything about them just kind of seemed to symbolize these archetypes. Like... Magic Johnson was fun and charismatic and showtime and would do these amazing like behind the back passes. And Larry Bird was every bit as good a basketball player as him and could do these amazing passes and stuff, but was just like all about going to work and competing. And it seemed like they just had this ethos about them and like everything to the point where the Boston Garden like had its obstructed view seats and was kind of run down and apparently like the locker rooms were too hot and sometimes like the pipes wouldn't work right and shit. <laughs> and yeah, he, he just, uh, I don't know, I, I feel weird talking about it because there probably was, and I, I know there was from context outside of it, a racial component to the way the rest of the country viewed this rivalry and probably it built into the story that gets told about it to the fact that I consider them a blue collar team where they definitely had a lot more white guys on the team than the Lakers did and I hate that that is part of the story that I probably bought into on a certain level but it is amazing to watch a guy play who is just like would make amazing like behind the backboard shots and things but was in certain ways kind of a boring superstar I like that idea. There's part of me that I think probably internalized my dad's like, sit down and watch the goddamn game aspect of rooting for sports. <laughs> Where I'm like, you know, the guy at the Globetrotters game who's like, come on, fundamentals, guys. <laughs> when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? <laughs> and the thing is, like, you talk about moments and stuff, right? Because apart from the, you know, Jordan versus Bird one-on-one NES game ad that I saw, I had no context. And it was only about, it was I think it was about a year ago, where I found myself stumbling into a video of just highlights. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it looks like there is a green screen team that whenever the ball will leave Larry Bird's fingers, it will be guided by people in green suits. Yeah. No matter where he is and just land in the net, you know? Yeah. It's one of those things where... And, and in the interviews in between, when people are talking about him, like teammates and, and rivals and stuff, everyone says, yeah, he could be a bit of a jerk, but he was also talented enough that you knew why he was a jerk. He wasn't being a jerk to be mean. He was being a jerk because he knew that he could back it up. Right. And really, the, the only other athlete I've heard talked about in that way was actually Muhammad Ali. I remember reading a book about boxing and people were saying, yeah, you know, everyone talks about trash talking, but at the end of a boxing match, you know... Every person in there is your family because you have just been through this incredible ordeal. And that's why you see boxers who hate each other will hug at the end yeah. because they are together. And the only person who would break that rule was Muhammad Ali because you could just see that it was in him and he could not stop his mouth. <laughs> I, I've heard similar things about Reggie Miller, too. Oh, there you go. The 30 for 30 about Reggie Miller, and it's not an impression that was cultivated that like I knew anything about before I watched that. And I grew up watching Reggie Miller play. I knew he talked some shit, but I had always gotten the fundamental idea that like, no, he's just like a really nice kind of unassuming guy. And no, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, no, Larry Bird had, you, you see the words basketball IQ get thrown around a lot, but when he was on the court, you got the impression that he just understood every second of what was happening in every interaction between the teams. Mm -hmm. It was amazing to watch. It wasn't that he didn't have the physical gifts, but he didn't have the same physical gifts that a lot of superstars did. And he was still a superstar just because he knew what was happening so goddamn well.
So explain to me how Rainbow Trainer's Lap comes about. How what? You know this one? No. Okay. So this Are is we the talking one Mario was... Kart? No, no. This <laughs> is a story I found where he was calling his shots from the court. And at one point, leaned over and said, Rainbow Trainer's Lap. And oh, then charged across okay. the court. Okay, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Go on. Uh, no, no, no. You you finish it. I know what you're talking about now, though. So he takes the mad dive, like gets hit on the way, bounced off the court, lands in the trainer's lap, but the shot's off before it goes and goes straight in exactly as he called it. Because like you said, he had seen the entire court. He knew exactly how it was going to play out. Yeah, it's watching him play is like watching the, in my opinion, pretty bad Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie. Ah, uh, Yes where he solves the mystery of exactly how he's going to kick that guy's ass. And you see it like slow down. And he's like, okay, this leads to this. This leads to this. That's where this nerve point is. And then you see it play out in regular time and it looks like magic, but it is just, nope. That is just the logical deconstruction of that fight scene. And I never could have done that in real time. It's like something out of Asimov's foundation. Yeah. Where it's just like, yeah, I can do the math and I know how our civilization is going to go for the next 500 years. Yeah, that's kind of the things that Larry Bird could do in his mind. I do want to real quick talk about my second favorite basketball player, though, which is Rashid Wallace, who played for the Portland Trailblazers. And there's kind of a through line where my favorite players are always the guys that if he was on anybody else's team is going to be my least favorite player. Rashid Wallace after a disappointing loss one time, answered every question in a press interview by saying it was a good game. Both teams played hard. And it went on for an amazingly long period of time. It was astounding. He was also the guy who, when he ended up playing with the Detroit Pistons, he was never very content when he was in Portland. He held a lot of records for most technical fouls. But They do the like jumbotron like between period like get to know your players and they asked him who your favorite comic book hero is and pretty much everybody else on the team said Batman or Superman and he said exuberantly Magneto the master of magnetism. And I don't get the impression that he is a comic book nerd at all, but I love that that's his idea of, A, a hero, and and that he went that far outside of the box with it. And Rashid Wallace is amazing. He used to do this other thing where, as I said, he would get a lot of technical fouls. Many of those were the fact that when somebody else was shooting free throws and he had been called for the foul on them and he felt that he had not committed that foul, if they missed the free throw, he would yell, Ball don't lie! and he kept doing that after he had gotten a technical foul for it i believe he got ejected from some games for it (laughs) but yeah i uh, rishi he was also a very good basketball player he was a power forward he was an all-star several times he helped detroit win a championship but those are the moments that make him my favorite because what it comes down to in sports is in a sports game you have to construct your own story There's this, you have to impose your own narrative on the game because fundamentally what's happening isn't all that interesting if you divorce it from the idea of narrative. So you have this cast of characters and you try to learn what you can about them and you end up imposing so much of your own ideas onto these guys and putting together like, oh, he just made that shot 
there's a redemptive arc in that because he had missed these previous shots. And so when you have like a larger than life outsized character from sports, it makes it so much easier to tell the story that's going to satisfy your brain. That's actually incredibly well put. And I think that's where we're going to end it today. So Hub, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Ah, well, I would recommend that they check out my podcast, which is Tighten Up the Defense. Every week we talk about either a different Defenders comic book from the 70s or a different New Teen Titans book from the 80s. We go through them sequentially. They can also check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash ttwasteland. And if they do that, if you donate, then you get access to a podcast that I co-host with my wife about Howard the Duck comic books. Say the title, say the title, say the title. What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. It's a show whose name has diminishing returns, but hopefully whose content does not. And it's super fun. And it's Lisa is incredibly intelligent. And it's really fun to analyze those comics with her. So I would definitely check out that if you can. Excellent. And yes, listeners, I would definitely recommend tighten up the defense i am waiting eventually i suppose in 15 20 years or so you'll get to the one issue of defenders i read when i was a teenager which involved a local kid next to the defenders base ordering some like wheatgrass stuff out of a comic book which then turns into a plant monster and they have to fight it it's so dumb is it uh i'm that sounds like it's one of the Ed Hannigan issues. I might be it wrong might about be. that. It was when, you know, it's like Angel and Cloud and, and Valkyrie of this. And there's some really, really good stuff in there, too. I that That's the great thing about the Defenders, honestly, is like every time there is a writer, a creative change in it, I'm pissed off for the first few issues of it. And then I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. This guy is great with few exceptions. I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Hub. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. I am going to go watch some Larry Bird compilation videos. Excellent. I would recommend that. Thanks, Lucas. See, I'm in the paint and I'm driving, and I leave the team in assist. I ain't got to shoot it. I can holler you, but I know my team won't miss you here, though. And you flee the scene, because people aren't how people seem. It's human nature that they hate you. Everybody wants to be the king. And plus, I'm in my zone, so bring all the contenders on. But make it known, I stay strapped like I got suspenders on. I'm who they're depending on. Final seconds in the clutch. Game time, I'm long range. My hang time isn't much, but I'm on point from a mile out. Create space like that. Thank you very much to Nathaniel Hubbard for his time. Now, those of you who would have heard Hub's original appearance on the show know that he is both a bartender and a Portland resident, and so has access to some top-notch ingredients. As such, I don't mind reaching a little bit on this recipe, because I know he'll have it somewhere. And so I present the legend. In a mixing jug or heavy bottom glass, combine one and a half ounces of bourbon, a quarter ounce of cognac, half an ounce of Benedictine D.O.M. liqueur, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and three dashes of Peychaud's bitters. Add several large ice cubes and stir to combine. Strain into a cocktail glass and garnish with a twist of lemon. If you don't cover this drink with somebody, it's going to do some serious damage. Merry fucking Christmas. Enjoy. We're headliners, no fence riders, either friend or foe, no in-between. Knocking down any shot, any range, the new McKillburg Danny Age. You were one of those classic ones, traveling around this sun. You were one of 
The Math View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes will now be released every second Thursday evening, with a bonus episode in between, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofview, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. Now this is normally the bit where I come up with some fanciful thing that you could do to buy me, but really I'm just so happy that so many of you stuck around during my hiatus, even when I wasn't putting out any content, and kept your donations there, even if you had to reduce them. I don't care. You're all fantastic. If you would like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review, and I'll read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one with every song I've ever used. All of them, including this. It's Legend by 21 Pilots. I thought it rather fitting. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Now next week is going to be a bonus episode, but the episode after, it's the revenge of Chris Sims, and a little event that we're calling Knifesgiving. Join me, won't you? And just look at some of this art. Okay. I am a slow typer, I'm sorry. That is okay. <laughs>